and welcome to another episode of the Burt's Books podcast. It's another special episode where I am joined by an author who's going to chat to us about their book. Today it is Cole Haddon and Psalms for the End of the World. Now I have talked about this one online before. It is a bit of a uh, genre bending, tapestry weaving kind of sprawling novel. It's very ambitious. Uh, it's one of those ones that I had to read it little bit by little bit at the beginning until suddenly I got into it and everything clicked. The, the writing is really good. You just have to at the beginning trust it to take you where it's going to go. I do highly recommend this book. Uh, it's one that I haven't stopped thinking about since I read it just over a month ago. Uh, here though is Cole Haddon to tell you more about it uh, in his own words. All coming up after this meeting. On this episode of the Burt's Books podcast is Cole Haddon, the author of Psalms for the End of the World. Cole, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, now, um, this book has been described very evocatively, very sort of descriptively by quite a few people. I think perhaps the, uh, the one that we need to get out of the way is Dominic Nolan's one, A Fuck Ton of Fun. Uh, yeah, that's, that's my favorite review so far. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself and then tell us a bit about uh, about your book? All right. Uh, my name's Cole Haddon. I, I'm uh, I've been a screenwriter now for about twenty years, and Psalms for the End of the World is my first novel. Uh, it's uh, it begins in 1962 with Grace Polanski, a physics student by day and a diner waitress by night. She's secretly in love with Robert Jones, one of her regulars. He comes in every night to eat pie. And their unrequited love affair is interrupted when he leaves on a long work trip he won't talk about. He inexplicably returns the next night, uh, but doesn't remember who he is now. Uh, a, a kind of Hitchcock, wrong man, uh, amnesiac. Then the FBI shows up with their guns, waving, accusing Jones of blowing up Pasadena City Hall. Uh, except he has no memory of this either. So Gracie ends up uh, on the run with this Hitchcockian wrong man through America's Southwest, and soon, well, uh, much further, as, as you found out while you were reading it. Uh, so their quest uh, to try to work out this mystery, is Jones the terrorist, or did someone else with his face do it, begins to intersect uh, with other stories taking place elsewhere across time, uh, including a, a painter in post-revolutionary France whose paintings seem to drive people mad, uh, a pair of Nazi hunters, an identity-shifting rock star, uh, David Bowie-esque, Bob Dylan-esque uh, character whose music uh, might be a key to understanding uh, the universe, uh, two struggling uh, screenwriters in Hollywood inspired a bit by some of my experiences there, uh, a samurai trying to protect his son from a one-armed assassin and uh, a wannabe terrorist who's taken instructions from a talking rabbit. Uh, several more characters too. And as these stories collide, they begin to reveal how numerous characters and their realities are connected by love, grief, uh, and quantum physics. So yeah, that's, it's a small story. <laughs> it's a, si a simple little one. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, don't forget, I think uh, probably the astronaut is is my favourite of the characters outside of Grace and Bobby. Oh, Memori, yes. Yeah, Memori. 
what one of the things that I found about the book is that it's it's very much a choose your own adventure uh, for readers. Some readers have very it's very rare to find any two readers who like the same three characters uh, out of the book, which is uh, I think was an intention to create a very subjective, unique experience for each reader. But Memori is is one of my personal favorites, so I, I'm glad to hear you reacted to her. It's a big sprawling uh, sort of uh, sort of soup, I would say, of, mm. of people and characters and times and places. And I think one of the thing one of the things that I had when I was reading it, and when I was sort of describing it to people as I was reading it, saying, "I don't really know where this is going, yes. um, but the writing is so good that I'm kind of trusting the author just to take me there." What was the feedback that you had from early readers about sort of the initial chapters? Did, did anyone just go, I don't, I don't get it. What are you doing? <laughs> My wife. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, most of the feedback uh, really echoed what you just said, which was that uh, everybody found that they had many questions, but the writing they, they felt was so strong that they trusted the author and, and felt compelled to continue reading, uh, which is uh, a lot of onus to put uh, on, on the, the, the writing itself. Uh, it, was, um, it was a strange story to harness uh, over time because there were so many different parts of it. And I hadn't really read anything in book form that attempted something so sprawling. I'd seen it in graphic novels, I think Neil Gaiman's uh, Sandman series was certainly in the back of my mind uh, as I worked, uh, but a lot of it really was a question: could could it work? When when I, I took these little pivots away from the central storylines to uh, to sometimes just present tone poems that that only loosely connected to events. Uh, it's a it, I, long story short, I think the feedback I received was exactly uh, what I heard from you. I just, uh, yeah, it, I, it, it was a strange read, uh, a strange experience to to get that feedback uh, and try to make sense of it. Because <laughs> you don't know what you're doing uh, when, when everybody, uh, I, I guess, just gives a vote of confidence, uh, but a very ambiguous one. Yes. <laughs> It, it was very much that. It's like, well, I'm trusting the author here, but I really hope they deliver at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and there is a point, and I think it must be about two thirds of the way through, maybe three quarters of the way through, where I just got it, and I was like, okay, mm. I see what we're doing here. I know where we're going. And it's it was it was during part of Gracie and Bobby's story, which I I won't reveal uh, for people mm. who haven't read it, but um. We do follow Gracie and Bobby more than we do anyone else, don't we? Were they, was that the bit that you kind of wrote first? Did you write it all in one go or did you just pepper each character in as you went? This, well, the, the so the central story of uh, Bobby and Gracie, of Jones and uh, Gracie, began as a screenplay idea, uh, probably about 12 years ago. I had begun to collect notes for this world probably about 20 years ago, but that, that 
the first stab was as this idea for a screenplay. And when I discussed it with the people that I worked with, my representatives, they all told me it was uh, a, a questionable idea to pursue as a film uh, because there were aspects of it that overlapped with Matrix. And Hollywood is a very simple-minded place. If you can draw an immediate comparison, you've probably shot yourself in the foot. It's, it's not worth uh, pursuing. People will just fault it for that reason. Uh, and so I, I put it away, continued to collect notes, but it was the story that always mattered most to me. And uh, as I began to work, uh, I think that that began to evolve from there to involve uh, these these other characters along the way that were really uh, the result of the the other research I had been doing over uh, over time. Uh, and the reason I think that those other characters ended up uh, injecting themselves into Bobby and Gracie's story uh, was a bit of advice uh, a friend of mine, Harley Payton, uh, gave me. And Harley worked on a television series I created called Dracula. Uh, and he also wrote half of Twin Peaks. Uh, and so uh, I love Twin Peaks. Uh, and he, he told me that uh, David Lynch was the most intuitive filmmaker that he'd ever worked with, that the man never stopped to ask whether or not something he was doing made sense. He just trusted himself. And so as I began to work, I, I think uh, after being a writer for a professional writer for about 15 years, I just decided to stop questioning why I wanted to do something until I finished my first draft. Uh, and that's how several of those characters were created. They just began to pop out of the, the story uh, as I worked. Some of them were cut out uh, by the end, but uh, that's, that's how it became that sort of uh, sprawling tapestry uh, of stories because there were just things happening in my life I wanted to explore. They ended up a, a bit of a short story in the novel. And then they somehow intuitively, they just connected to everything else in ways that surprised me. Uh, there were connections that were made that I didn't even see coming until the second draft that were clearly there. I just, I hadn't even seen them myself. And so then I got to uh, hone them and, and really refine them uh, over time. It's interesting you made the point um, about how the sort of obvious connections to the Matrix and mm. and and Hollywood, you know, not liking those comparisons, because uh, in the book world, it's really useful to be able to say it's like this book, it's like this one, go for it. And mm. the one that um, I we, we discussed uh, previously was Cloud Atlas. Yes, um, I said it was like Cloud Atlas on steroids. And as much as I'm talking about the book, I'm actually also talking about the film. Because yes, the film of Cloud Atlas, the structure is very different to the book, but the structure of the very film different is, experiences. Yeah, but the structure of the film is a lot more like the structure of this book in that it, we're jumping around all over the place. Was was it much of a, an inspiration, Cloud Atlas, either the film or the book? I, I think that the Wachowskis uh, have always been an influence uh, on me and their take on, on Cloud Atlas with, uh, I've never said his surname, but Tom Twicker. Uh, so he co-wrote it uh, with them. Uh, I, I think that that was in my mind, this, uh, which I, I think is, is another tapestry uh, type story, but the the Wachowski uh, sisters are also very much interested in the same uh, philosophy that uh, that I spend a lot of time reading. So they they were uh, 
I think they directed me through their work uh, to many things that I discovered uh, in the late 90s uh, and, and early 2000s. Uh, and so uh, even if it wasn't a, uh, a direct conscious uh, connection that I made, their work is, is, is deeply wound up in my identity at this point. Which is, is referenced to some degree. The film makes some references uh, to that. Even the, uh, the screenwriter characters are working on the script about Bobby and Gracie because that's my script that, that they're essentially uh, working on. So it's all, all tied together in, in, in a very strange way. All a bit it gets a bit meta in places doesn't it <laughs> yes well even if, if you get really deep you'll you'll find uh it's it is very much a a roadmap of of what of the influences in my life and the things that have brought me joy but also my own experiences the 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 character of talbert uh of tab uh, writes a script called Arabian Nights uh, in the, the the book, and that was my very first screenplay sale uh, in Hollywood. So, it's uh, it, it's all in there in some some way or another. So you're you're based in Australia currently. Yes. Uh, much of the action, certainly for Grace and Bobby, takes place in America, although there are parts all over the world. Uh, you, were you based in LA for Hollywood for a while? Uh, I was in Hollywood for 12 years, and then uh, in 2017, after the uh, the election in the States, I, we, my wife and I moved to the UK. We were those people who just stopped uh, wanting to live uh, in the States. Uh, and so we, uh, we moved to Southeast London, and that's where I... Uh, I wrote the, the first through 50th drafts of the of the book uh, before we moved to Abington in, in Oxfordshire and I, I completed the work there. And but not a lot of it actually takes place in the UK, does it? That is something I am never going to understand considering how much I love the UK. <laughs> uh, it, there were storylines I began to explore uh, and, and then aborted for reasons I, I, I couldn't explain now. Uh, I think it was that uh, at the end of the day, when I looked back at history, the various moments in history I wanted to play around with, uh, they had to reflect a more uh, multifaceted world. Uh, and so I think I was very conscious of the story. It's getting very deep into the structure of the story, but the story of Jones and Grace here of two white characters, and it begins to evolve as the story moves on and the story becomes wider and it begins to reflect, uh, I think, a more multicultural uh, world. And that's tied into the concept of what Jones did to this world, uh, his part uh, in its, uh, its origins. And so I think it became important to explore, and also just, I, I, I had written a lot set in England at that point in the, the screenplay uh, world. I just wanted to explore uh, other things. I had collected these random details of, of moments around uh, the world, like the, the sacking of the Library of Baghdad that I had never read about anywhere. I, I, I wanted to see some of those images uh, on the page. So I think that just began to uh, replace uh, the, the primacy of, of England uh, in my mind as I worked. And 
the the story of Jones and Gracie is set in the American Southwest because I think it the American in me I'm only half American as I like to point out <laughs> but the uh, the American uh, in me uh, finds Americana uh, and that sort of Technicolor dream of uh, the American identity through the uh, 50s and 60s both deeply enticing and incredibly frightening and uh, and toxic. So I, it's something, I think that's why I settled on that, that time period uh, for them. There is though, I think one um, sort of very British uh, connection, which is the David Bowie-esque character. Um, yes. I mean, it feels like, as I was reading it, and I know nothing about David Bowie particularly, but I was like, well, this is David Bowie. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's, everybody who reads it takes that. And it's true that Bowie is a major influence uh, on me. I think that uh, that he did to me something that he, he did to many people, which is sort of break their imagination open uh, and and really remove uh, limits uh, in a in an exciting way, uh, but the character of Damien Psycho, as much as it's influenced by Bowie, or I should say, it's influenced by my relationship with Bowie, which is yeah. is very subjective. I came to Bowie later than other people. I it would have been my mid twenties, uh, and my relationship to him is different. I've found than many other people's, and and how I understand him and how I interpret him. Uh, and so I, I think I mashed him together with Bob Dylan, who is another identity shifting uh, musician that I greatly admire and, uh, and whose work I've studied uh, quite a bit. So it, Bob Dylan, I feel is just, I, I found wasn't as interesting visually or conceptually. And when I started working on it, Bowie had only recently died and everybody was fixated on this notion that uh, Bowie was in some way holding the universe together. Uh, and it was hard not to feel that way as America was crumbling around me and uh, Brexit was happening and just everything that I thought uh, th about the world I was bringing my two children into uh, was just rapidly disappearing. It, it all went wrong when Bowie died. <laughs> yeah, yes. And so I, I, there was an element of that, that, uh, that, that, took the character from being a minor part of the story into being a, a much more significant thematic one. Yeah. Uh, he has very little on the page time himself, but his presence is, is felt all the way through it. It's at this point that I normally ask uh, my guest for a recommendation of a book that they have yeah. been reading recently. Is there something that you would uh, like to share with us? Yes, I, I have it sitting right here. In fact, uh, Sequoia uh, Nagamatsu's How, uh, How We Go in the Dark. Have you read it? I have, yes. Oh, it's, it was my second time I read it this year because I couldn't help uh, returning to it. it it's, it's an exquisite novel, as I, uh, your reaction seems to suggest you, you agree with. Uh, this, if, if, if anyone at home has, knows nothing about it, it's this uh, really more of a series of interconnected short stories uh, that tackle an outbreak of an ancient Arctic virus that global warming has released. And uh, Sequoia sold it, uh, from my understanding, about two months before COVID actually happened. And so uh, 
I think in a world where I don't have, I haven't been able to experience much art about COVID, uh, that that Station Eleven, the television series, which which came after the book, but then this this book, uh, I, I think they provided really wonderful allegories uh, that allowed me to be horrified, but also deeply moved about what we are as uh, as human beings, the horrors that we're we're capable of, but how we handle grief and love and and constantly reach uh, to improve ourselves despite uh, the tragedies uh, uh, around us. And so I was really shook by it. I, I think it's very much uh, an interesting spiritual uh, sibling to Sea of Tranquility from Emily St. John Mendel, they, you know, coming out in the same year. Uh, and I think have, you having read Psalms, while they're not uh, necessarily similar, uh, their themes and uh, and whatnot, uh, grief uh, in particular. I, I often call Psalms a a bit of poppy grief porn, which uh, <laughs> uh, it's, I, I'm constantly told how fun it is. And I think, but I wrote it from uh, from a place of of grief, and so it's it's lovely that that I, I was able to get a little bit of that reaction out of people uh, that they were still able to find uh, so much joy in it. Uh, so that's my, that's, I just read it and I, I can't stop telling people about it. Uh, I, I, I hope people, more people read it. I'm really, I'm pleased, I'm pleased that you picked that one actually, because uh, it's, it's one that again, I read and I thought, well, I read it, I read it before I read Psalms and then I read Psalms mm. and I thought, wow, this feels like, there's a bit of a connection there's similar in that in that sort of tapestry of stories but yes. but different enough like like you say they're not siblings they're not related they're not the same story but they feel like they could be cousins maybe yeah i i i i, I certainly have uh, a, a literary crush on sequoia right now uh, after after reading this and some of uh, his other work uh, it, it it it's hard not to uh it, it was a very moving book i'm still i still think about it i i finished the second time two or three weeks ago and it's still lingering in my mind which is a a rare thing uh, for me when i read uh, but this one continues to shake me even afterward now as people are listening to this it is the first of september and psalms for the end of the world is out uh, as we're recording it, though, uh, it's a couple of weeks before. So what are your plans for publication day? Do you have a big party to go to? Uh, not that I know of yet. I'll be in Australia. I'll, I think that the uh, the idea, uh, my wife and I are probably going to hop between uh, bookshops and, and just sort of see it in the wild uh, and then probably drink a lot of wine. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it, my my wife has been with me through the the journey. Uh, I started writing the book uh, nine days after she gave birth to our second son uh, wow. at, at three o'clock in the morning with the the kids still strapped to me, and so it's it's felt like very much a, a family affair. And so I, I think we're just going to spend it uh, together, and and then the next day uh, get uh, get to work. Uh, in, in a more traditional way of get back to work, so to say, uh, promoting the book. And what is next for you after after this book is out and has sold amazingly well? What's book two going to be? Or are you well, going back to screenwriting? 
I, I can only hope it sells that well. Uh, so that, that would be wonderful. I'd like to uh, write many more of these. Uh, I've I've been dividing my time between screenwriting I've, I, and uh, and a bit of journalism. I've returned uh, to writing essays uh, in this sort of the existential space of Psalms. I, I, I call it a little bit of, of pop existentialism, uh, just sort of exploring uh, our relationship with pop culture uh, and quite often through film and, uh, and television. Uh, and then I, I did finish a second novel, uh, a, about three weeks ago, uh, wow. and so uh, it's uh, it's I would call it an existential cousin uh, to uh, I think I, I might have said existential about fifty times on this uh, <laughs> during this conversation, uh, but it's it it's uh, it's a spiritual cousin. We'll say well, let's use spiritual <laughs> this time <laughs> uh, to to Psalms. Uh, it's it's. Um, a bit shorter and this time a little bit more horror worked into it uh, okay. and uh, I'll say it's it's set in an American drive-in uh, in in the middle of the desert uh, and there's uh, there's a mystery as to what the drive-in uh, really is uh, so I, I think it's uh it's it's a bit Stephen King meets David Lynch wow okay yeah. is it multiple characters again point of views or is it just a single not as many as this, uh, not as many as Psalms. Uh, I think there are six this time. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I decided to, to, to focus more on, on, a, on a central collection of, of characters and not, uh, not get lost in those tangents uh, this time around. But I think it's still, uh, it's a puzzle uh, like Psalms. Psalms is a a puzzle that if you read it, my wife's read it four times, she's still finding things that I've done, these little connections and, and secrets that you get as you read. And, and I think it's, uh, it's very similar in that regard, uh, trying to work out uh, a larger mystery uh, through the experiences of uh, these six characters. Well, I'm looking forward to it already. Um, thank you, thank you uh, so much for joining me um, and good luck with the uh, publication of Psalms for the End of the World. Thank you so much and thank you uh, for taking the time to chat. So what do you think? Have we sold you on Psalms for the End of the World or does it feel like maybe you need a bit more information? Well, you can head to birthbooks.co.uk where you can find the book and you can read a bit more about it. And of course you can buy the book, which I do strongly recommend. It is available right now. That's everything for this week. Uh, we'll be back on Sunday. Me and Michael will be back on Sunday to talk about the books that we've been reading this week. Uh, in the meantime, please do get in touch. Email me, Bert, at bertsbooks.co.uk. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at bertsbooks. Uh, and just let us know what you think about everything bookish. We would love to hear from you. Please do remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. That way you will never miss an episode. Keep reading. <laughs>